That's awesome. We'll take her word on that one. Yes. Uh, well, good morning. My name is Jarrett Stevens. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Soul City Church. And what we want to get into over the next couple of weeks is what those kids so beautifully illustrated for us is this idea of love. How does it work? How does it really work in our lives? How do we live into the love that God has for us and for this world? How do we not just think about it, talk about it, but how do we be about it when it comes to loving our friends and our neighbors and this neighborhood, this city, and this world like God does? How do we put love to work? And so we're going to be looking at that from a lot of different angles. This morning, what I really want us to look at is how it is that God loves you. We have to start there. You have to start at the beginning of how God loves you. And it's good to start at the beginning because we're at the beginning of a new year. And I I love this time of year. I love kind of the rest that comes from a Christmas break. Hopefully you got a little bit of rest and some downtime to kind of recover. And, And I'm coming back fully recharged from our little break that we took as a family. We go away every Christmas time and disappear in a cabin and come back recharged and energized. And so I've kind of made my resolutions and my goals for 2014. And I'm so excited to kind of get into it and get into this year and see what God has for me this year. And I was thinking as I was preparing notes and, and thoughts for this morning, I wonder how many folks kind of start the year from a similar place. And so I want to do just an informal survey, if I could, to see how many of us actually start the year in a new year with resolutions. So just by show of hands, I'm not going to ask you what you said or what they were. Just if you made one or more resolutions for 2014, would you raise your hand right now? All right, so look around and kind of see. Awesome. If, so that's great, about half the room. If you did not make and do not make resolutions, put a fist up in the air like, yeah, I, am not, I don't need your weak little lists to accomplish Okay, good. That's usually how it is. Like people who make resolutions are all excited about it, and people who don't are adamant about why they don't. It's funny, uh, just a couple days ago, the University of Scranton, which, which is a thing, um, <laughs> I'm not making any comments, I'm just saying it exists, uh, posted uh, uh, an article in the Journal of Clinical Psychology. And I, I know many of you subscribe to the Journal of Clinical Psychology and have probably already read this, uh, but they did a study... Uh, over uh, resolutions, specifically around you know, New Year's Eve, and, and, and goals for a year, and, and, and resolutions, and why it is we make them, and what really happens to them. And so I thought it'd be good for us as we kind of start this year, and many of us kind of start with some hopes and dreams, maybe even goals for this year, uh, to kind of know sort of the company that you keep. And here's what they found, exactly what we just found in our informal survey. What they found is about 45% of Americans make resolutions every year. So a little less than half the folks set out to make some resolutions to see some things change in their life. This is what's really interesting. You want to take a guess at what percentage of Americans actually keep their resolutions, actually see them through. What do you think? Yeah, you guys have a lot of faith in America. That's right. 8%. 8% of people make resolutions and actually see them through. That means the rest of the folks... It's a list that they lost somewhere, and one of their resolutions was to find that list. So that, this is what's really interesting. 24% of the people that they found, 24% of the people who make resolutions every year fail to accomplish them, and in fact never accomplish them, but continue to make them every year. So about a quarter of the people who make resolutions have never accomplished them. It's the same resolutions year after year after year after year. And this is why we're so good at making resolutions, because we're so good at breaking them. It's so hard to actually keep them. 
And so whether you're a list person or not a list person, I think all of us at some level, whether you kind of see your resolutions through or you don't kind of live by that system or whatever, I think all of us actually, especially around this time of year, have a hope or desire for a better life in the, this next year to come or for some things to kind of get dialed in, or for some things to sort of get sorted out. I think all of us, and again, this is true no matter where you're at, sort of on the faith continuum, like in a relationship with God, you're kind of exploring relationship. I think this is just true of all of us, of human beings, that we long to sort of live this life that we have idealized for ourselves that's sort of out there, and that if we could just sort of become that person, then we'll sort of live the life that we're supposed to live. And this is how we go about making resolutions. In fact, this is at the core of every resolution you've ever made or every life goal or career goal you've ever made is this one thought that to become the person I'm supposed to become, whoever that is, there are things I have to do to get there. Right? Makes sense, right? To become this person, there are things that I have to do or, in some cases, stop doing to get there. So to become this person, I have to do these things. Now, this is true of every resolution, every life goal, every career goal. If I want to be that person, I have to do these things. It's true of a lot of actual kind of fields and places and parts of, of your life. Think about it. From, from when you were a student, if you wanted to be a better student, so if you want to be a better student, what are some of the things you have to do to be a better student? Anyone? Wake up. Study. Wake up is a great one, Rita. Start. <laughs> wake up and show up. That's keys to success in school. That's right. Yeah, you have to wake up, you have to show up, you have to study, you have to do your homework, right? So to become a great student, you have to do these great things. If you want to be a great employee, what are some of the things you have to do? Wake up. Yeah, that's right. Wake up before work, wake up during work, right? You have to show up, you have to maybe sometimes to be a better employee in your context, you have to stay longer. You have to work harder. You kind of know if I'm going to be that sort of better person, if I'm going to achieve this kind of career status, I have to do these things to get there. Think about it. Guys, those of you especially who are husbands, if you want to be a better husband, what do you have to do? Whatever she says. And that it was that quiet for that long concerns me for the guys in this room. You want to be a better husband? Just do whatever she says. And finish with yes, ma'am. Do whatever you have to do to be. That's the way of our world. That's kind of the way it works. If I want to be this person, I have to do these things. That's how it works in our world. But interestingly enough, that's not how it works with God. That's not how love works. See, God operates on a completely different paradigm. And God starts in a completely different place. When God looks at you and you know, and he, he created you, he knows you, and he thinks of your life, he starts from a very, very, very different place. For you to become who you are meant to be, who you're created to be and called by God to be, it doesn't start with doing things. It actually starts in a different place with God. It starts with who he is. We're going to look at this this morning. We're going to look at a passage from the Bible that helps us understand this reality. When it comes to you becoming who you were meant to be, it doesn't start with the things you do. It doesn't start with the lists you make or whether you check off all the boxes. It ultimately starts with who God is. And because of who God is, that redefines who you are. And when your life is redefined by God, then you do things in this world then you're directed and compelled to do things in this world that come out of who you are in God. Now, this is fundamental sort of Christian teaching, 
but I think something that we often forget and overlook. So the way of the world is to be something, you do things. But God says, no, 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 you already are someone to me. And from that identity and that reality, that's how and why you do the things that you do in this world. We're going to look at sort of how that works and why that works. Because when you get this concept, it's the reason we're starting this year in this place. When you get this, that it starts with who God is and how he defines you, and then from there, that's why you do and how you do and what you do with your life. It has the power to completely, completely reframe your life and change the trajectory of not only this year, but of your whole life. It enables you to actually put love to work in every area of your life. So we're going to look at what this really looks like and how the Bible teaches this in one passage, and it's found in 1 John chapter 4. So if you brought a Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 John 4. If you didn't, it's okay. Maybe you're a guest or new here. Here's the great thing. We've got you covered. There is a blue Bible in the seat back in front of you. So I'm going to ask everyone to pull this out so you can see for yourself. Don't just take what I'm saying here, but we're all going to kind of read from the same playbook here. Grab a Bible, 1 John chapter 4. In the blue Bible, it's page 856. 856. Now, let me let you know while you're doing that. We say this all the time at Soul City Church, but we're this serious about it. If you are interested in having a relationship with God or at least exploring what that means, and you don't own a Bible, we can take care of that for you. This blue Bible that you're holding in your hand is now yours. We, we, we believe in the transformational teaching and truth of this book so much that if you don't own one, you get to steal a Bible from church today. Start 2014 right. Maybe one of your resolutions was to steal more things. Start with the Bible. <laughs> Start with the Bible. And if it is, I'm really glad you're in church this morning. So here's the deal. First John chapter four. Let me give you quick context. And we're gonna look at a couple of verses together that I think if we get right, completely reframe how you look at yourself and how you have a relationship with God in this world, how you put love to work. Quick context. This is a book written by one of the original disciples of Jesus. And you may be familiar with Jesus called 12 disciples, kind of surrounded himself with them and poured everything he had into them for about three or so years before ultimately he went to the cross and was raised by God from the dead. He poured into these 12. And this is one of them. His name's John. And John actually wrote a couple books in the Bible. John wrote the Gospel of John, which tells the story of the life of Jesus. If you're interested in studying the life of Jesus, the Gospel of John is a great place to start. It's written by this same guy we're going to read from in a second. He also wrote the last book in the Bible, where it became the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. Not a good place to start if you've never read the Bible before. So let me just help you with that right there. We'll get to that later. This is another book that he wrote, and it's, it's reflections on the reality of a God who loves and what that means for our lives. And what John saw in the life of Jesus was a really interesting um, thing that Jesus did. It's a very true thing that he did. Jesus gave nicknames to his friends and followers. It's a, it, it's a really fascinating little dynamic into his relationship with them. But he had nicknames for some of his disciples. He called Peter the Rock. He renamed him the Rock. Like, you're a rock that the church is going to be built on. And he kind of gave Peter a new identity, a new nickname. He called James and John, he called them the Sons of Thunder. What a great nickname to get. These are the Sons of Thunder because they were loud and strong, and so he gave them that nickname. Thomas, if you're familiar with Doubting Thomas, his nickname was the Twin because many biblical, uh, you know, soci like theologians and stuff think that he had a twin. It's not Jesus' best nickname. I'm going to be honest with you. He called him a twin because he was a twin, but it's still, it's okay. So John actually had a nickname as well, and John's nickname was the Beloved. 
Now, this is a really interesting nickname. The Beloved, the one loved by God. Now, what didn't mean he was Jesus' favorite or anything like that, but Jesus gave an identity to John. He said, John, you are my beloved disciple, this one whom I love. And I want you to know when you think of yourself that you are the one whom I love, the Beloved, John the Beloved. And so these are the writings of John the Beloved to you and I, the Beloved of God today. 1 John chapter 4. We'll start with verse 7. John the Beloved writes these words, Dear friends, that's you and me. Let us love one another. Now there's a do. Okay, here's a thing to do. Let us love one another. Here's the thing to do, but John follows it up with the why. Because for love comes from whom? God. So we do this thing because it already comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. So if you've in any like point in your life experienced love working, where you've been loved by someone or you've loved someone well, that actually is a reflection of a God who is love. At his core, he is love. He's not a God who's loving. He's a God who is love. It says anyone who's ever loved has experienced a glimpse of the glory of this God who is love. Verse 8, whoever does not love doesn't know God because God what? Is love. Now, this is a very interesting thing. You can be a really religious person and not a very loving person. Maybe you've met a few of them. Maybe you've seen them on TV. John's saying, no, that's not how it works. You, You don't get to know a lot about God and not love people. If you don't love people, you don't know God for who he truly is. Because God is love. Verse 9. Now look at, John's going to give us a picture of how love works. Look at this. Verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us, or for us, or to us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. What's John talking about here? He's saying, look, this is how God put love to work. He put love to work by sending his son into this world so that we can actually know God through him. What John is describing here in 1 John 4, 9 is Christmas. It's what we just celebrated. God with us. God sent his son to be with us. That is an act of God's love. It's not obligation. It's not because God had to do it. It's because God is love and he cannot not love. And so he sends his son as an act of love into our world. That's Christmas, 1 John 4, 9. 1 John 4.10, he jumps to Easter. This is love, John says. This is love. Not that we loved God or did anything to sort of earn God's love. It's not that we did anything first, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the story of Easter. This is the heart of the Christian faith, is that this God loves so much that he gave his son for us, and that his death and resurrection is ultimately actually what paid the price of our sin and self-destruction, of our separation from God. God loves, and so he gives, and love went to work when Jesus came to this earth, and love went to work at a cross, and love went to work when Jesus was raised by God from the dead. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us before we could do anything to earn it or destroy it. He loves us. See, the whole reason that love works anywhere, anytime, with anyone when love works, the whole reason why love works is because God loved first. Period. 
If love ever works, it's only because God loved first. He loved you first before you could ever love or reject or deny him. He loved you before the cross. He loves you after the cross. He loved you in your dark days. He loves you in your joy-filled days. He loves first before you could ever do anything to try and impress him or mess it up. He loves first. And that's the only reason and the only way that love ever works is because God actually loves first. The initiative is taken by the creator towards you and towards me that you can actually be loved by the God of the universe. And so John sums it all up in verse 11. Dear friends, going back to where we started, dear friends, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John just kind of sums it up. Look, since we can see how God has demonstrated, has put love to work for us, we, we also ought to love each other. This is what we're going to talk about next week. We're going to explore how we sort of love God over the next couple of weeks, how we love each other. That's what this whole series is about. John says, look, because of what God has already done, because God is love and he loves, we ought to love. And you can read a verse like that and go, yeah, we should. We totally should. It's a good thought, John. But then Monday comes. Or then you get home and the fight between you and your spouse hasn't quite settled yet. Or then you kind of get called back and into an old habit, an old pattern, an old addiction that has a hold on your life. And you go, no, I know, I know I'm not. I know God is love and I'm loved and I should love. But, but the truth is, oftentimes we don't, do we? We want to. I think we do. I think you do. I think I do. We want to love. We want to be more loving. But oftentimes, we don't. Because I think we miss the fundamental message that John, the beloved, is giving to us in 1 John 4 right here. I think so many times the reason we ought to love but we don't is because we simply do not get how loved we are. If your heart could comprehend God's love for you, if you could... If you could even for one second comprehend the depth and the extent of God's love for you, it would overwhelm you. It would break your heart in all the right places. So great is the love of the Father for us that he would send his Son into this world for us. You are so loved, and I think the reason lots of times we don't love others as we ought to is because we don't get how loved we are. You don't get or really believe that you really deserve or that you're really worth the love of the God of the universe. I think for, for many of us, we, we kind of get stuck in sort of what we have to do to get what God has already offered to us. And maybe you grew up kind of in a family that taught you this or maybe a faith that taught you that there's things you got to do to kind of keep things moving with God. There's things you sort of have to do to sort of keep God, you know, on the good graces with you, or at least not, you know, mad at you or on your back all the time. And so you got to sort of, you know, say these prayers or, or show up and do this or give this money to kind of do this thing. To, that sort of keeps everything moving with God. The reality that the Bible teaches consistently again and again and again and again is that there's nothing you can do to earn God's love for you. So you can actually just free yourself from that right now. There's nothing you can do 
to earn God's love for you. There's nothing you could humanly do to earn the love of God for you. It's not possible. So free yourself from that treadmill while you can. It goes nowhere. And this is the frustration of religion. It's because religion believes, no, 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 no. I get it. God is big and God is good and God is out there and I'm not good enough for God. And so I got to do all these things to get to God and to earn his love for me. And you can spend your lifetime exhausting yourself and emptying yourself out to try and earn something that God already said, no, 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 no. I already offered you that love. I am love. And so I can't help but love. You are loved because I am love. And there's nothing you can do to earn it. And so your hope and desire to be a better person, that's great. But just know that that's not going to earn you an ounce more of God's love. There's nothing you can do to earn what's already been offered to you by God. And that would be good news enough to go, oh, okay, well, that settles that one. Like, you know, I can't possibly do that. So why would I even attempt to give my life to try and earn what God has offered to me? There's even better news. The Bible teaches this consistently throughout the Bible again and again. Not only is there nothing you can do to earn God's love for you, there's nothing you can do to undo God's love for you. There's nothing you can do that will undo God's love for you. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing that you've done that can undo God's unconditional, unbelievable, inexplicable love for you. There's nothing that you could have done in your past. That really dark season for you, that really dark moment for you, that really unhealthy relationship, that can't undo God's love for you. There's no amount of sort of swindling and cheating your way through college or, or you know, kind of shady business deals and things that went south and things that went sour. There's no, no amount of failure that can undo God's love for you. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you could have done last night as much as you regretted it and even debated whether you should even show up here this morning. There's nothing you can do that can undo God's love for you. Friends, you're not going to get a better deal than that in this life. You are loved by the God of the universe. And when you allow yourself to be defined by that, that then determines what you can do and how you live your life in this world. That frees you up to offer love to others because you're not so preoccupied with getting it from others. You've already received it from God. And so now you actually have something to offer others out of who you are. Someone that is loved by God. The beloved, the beloved, loved by God. A couple weeks ago, before the year ended, I had to, a buddy of mine was applying for a job, and he asked if he could put me down as a reference. And so I don't know, he's playing the pastor card or something. I don't, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I really don't know how, if that helps or not. And so, yes, of course, you know, I filled out the reference. And I thought it was, I had just kind of this little, profound moment, like, hey, this is a really interesting seat that I'm sitting in right now. Someone at a company I don't know, someone I don't know, is asking me to tell them about someone I do know. And what I say actually may have a real impact on this person's, you know, career or job or opportunities possibly. This is a really interesting seat to sit in, to think that what I say and how I describe this person could have a very real impact on their their job, their, their future. 
And it's like kind of had that little profound moment of like, huh, I'm kind of a big deal. And we've had that little moment and kind of went on filling it out. Heart began to wonder and began to think. So, so if a reference form for me came across God's desk, what would he say? So just go with the image. God's got a really beautiful desk made of gold and clouds and unicorn horns and whatever. God's got a desk. And someone slides your reference across his desk. Now, you know what we've just read from the Bible, and maybe you kind of already knew, yep, God loves me, I'm loved by God, I sang that song as a kid, I get it. But what do you really think God thinks of you? When, when you think about what God thinks about you, what do you think he thinks? What do you think God thinks about when he thinks about you? Honestly, honestly, if you filled out a reference form for you, what do you think God would have to say about you? What is it that you believe he would say? Maybe, maybe for you it's this person's a really nice person and they try really hard. And that's a great, that's, if that's sort of what you think God would think about you. Maybe for you, you'd think that God would write, uh, they're a good person, but they could do better. They should try harder. And maybe without even realizing it, that's just what you assume God thinks about you when he thinks about you. Or maybe your thought is that God would write down, you know, I'm not really sure. I haven't really seen him for a while. I wonder where they've been. Or it's been years since we spoke. And I'm not really in communication with them anymore. What do you think God thinks about when he thinks about you? Maybe for you, your thought would be that God would have to write down why it is that you're still stuck in those same old patterns that you said you were going to give up. It's 2014. She's still doing that. He's still doing that. And you feel or fear God's disappointment over you. And maybe that's what you thought God thought about when he thinks about you, is that he's disappointed in you. You really could have been someone special but you blew it. You messed up. You had your chance, and you blew it. What do you think God thinks about when he thinks about you? I know for for years for me, growing up, not as much now, but it comes back from time to time. If I had to imagine God filling out a reference form for me, what I imagined, what I thought God thought about me was that he would write the words down, he should do more. He should do more. At least he should do more than, than, than he's done before. He should, so he should be better than he should, you know, do these things less and do these things more because that's what I expect him to do. And he should at least be better than those around him so that lets him kind of know where he's at in the world. At least he's better than them. He may not be perfect, but he's better than his friends, so that's good enough. He should do more. He should do more for me. He should talk about me more. He should, he should pray more. If he were a real Christian, he'd journal more or just journal at all. That's what I thought God thought about me. He should do more. And what's amazing is my assumptions about God's view and perception of me, absolutely not in any way based in truth, affected my reality. I assumed that's what God thought about me. And so that's how I acted towards him. I have to do more. I have to be better. I have to try harder. 
I have to kind of, you know, I really blew it that time. And doggone it, you got to get better. You got to get stronger. And, and it's amazing how my actions, what I did, came out of what I believed God believed about me. Isn't that amazing? That you actually may have been making choices and decisions for many, many years. Again, I don't know where you're at sort of with God and having a relationship with him, but I do know this about you because I know this about me, that there are choices and decisions and patterns in your life that you've made that have come out of an assumption of what you think God thinks about you when he thinks about you. So can you imagine what might happen if you actually believed what the Bible clearly and consistently teaches, that God actually loves you? First, before you could ever do anything to earn it or undo it. He loves you. What that might switch in the way that you perceive yourself and have a relationship with God and how that might change what you actually do if you knew how much God loves you. How much he loves you. For any one of us who's ever kind of accomplished anything significant in our lives, you know about that switch. There is a fundamental mental switch that has to go off for you to accomplish anything significant in your life. Just think about it for a second. Follow me here. How many of you have ever run a marathon before? Just raise your hand. Okay, half marathon. Keep your hands up. Half marathon. 5K. How many of you have ever run to 7-Eleven before? Okay, okay. Now we know. Okay, okay. So at some point, in anything sort of physical challenge like that, at some point in your training, the wall is actually not in the race. The wall is in your head, in your training. At some point, you knew you had to make a switch to say, you know, because you were saying, I can't run, I'm not good at this, I can't do this. At some point, you had to make a switch, didn't you? You said, I'm doing this. I'm a runner. I'm going to finish. I'm going to do this. And for those of us who can kind of make that switch, it changes what you do. It changes how you go about things. Think about it. For, for, when I knew that I was going to marry Jeannie, I knew I was, I was going to marry her. It sw- how I acted switched because I moved from sort of being her boyfriend or, you know, I'm not sure. We'll see where this thing goes to. No, this is going to be my wife and I am going to be her husband for the rest of our lives as God would have us together. There is no other option. There is no out. I am her husband. And so I'm going to do these things differently now. I'm going to live into that reality because I see myself for who I am. I am her husband. That changes what I do based on how I see myself. For those of you who are artists or musicians, you, you know that at some point, you, you, for this thing to move sort of from something that's a hobby for you or something you kind of dabble in, there's a mental switch that happens, isn't there? Where you say, I am an artist and I make things. And I make things that matter to me and hopefully I make things that matter to this world. And even if only four people on Facebook like it, I'm still going to make it because this is who I am. M changes what you do when you see yourself for who you are. Anyone who put down healthy habits, exercise, eating, as maybe one of your resolutions for the 45% of us that actually put that down, for the 8% of us that are actually going to do it, something switches. When you don't say, I hope to get healthy, I hope to be, I hope to make, but when you say, no, I am committed to this. I am worth taking care of myself. I'm worth it, so it's worth it. The switch happens when you get who you really are. It changes what you do. And so I wonder what would happen if you allowed God to make that switch for you today. You are someone 
loved by the God of the universe. And there's nothing you can do to earn it. Thank God. And there's nothing you can do to undo it. Praise Jesus. You are loved. You're loved. And when you get that you're loved, it then changes what you do. John says, when you get that you're loved, you love. You love God and you love others because you got fundamentally that you are a beloved, loved by God. It is powerful what happens when our perspective is rooted in reality. What we do and how we live comes out of that place. I wonder, I, I wonder if the reason that you continue to keep having this sort of series and string of bad relationships and you keep choosing those kinds of guys is because somewhere you fundamentally believe you are not worthy of love. You're not worth it. And so you continue to seek out guys who prove that point to you. I wonder if the reason that addiction continues to have such a stronghold, and I know there's a lot of clinical and psychological attachments to that addiction, but I wonder if you don't truly believe in your heart somewhere that God loves you and is going to take care of you, and so you take the wheel for yourself again, and you drive your life right into a ditch again. I wonder how much of life we miss because we miss how much God loves us, how much he loves you. There's nothing you can do to earn it, and there's nothing you can do to undo it. When you get who you are in God, it changes what you do. A couple weeks before Christmas, there was a story that got the attention of our whole country, and it reminded us that we're not such terrible people. It's a story of Miles Scott, and he's a little kid who, really since the age of 20 months old, was battling leukemia. And he's a little five-year-old kid, so most of his life he was battling leukemia, fighting cancer as a little kid. And so his parents wrote a letter to the Make-A-Wish Foundation and said, hey, Miles loves Batman. And if there's anything you can do to help make kind of a Batman thing a reality for him, it would mean the world to him. If he could just have a day where he believed he was Batman, he would love that day. And what's so cool is that some people in the San Francisco office of the Make-A-Wish Foundation said, oh, we can help Miles believe. And they began to leverage all of their influences and contacts, and people began to share the story. And, and what they ended up doing is taking a day where a large part of the city of San Francisco shut down to celebrate one five-year-old boy fighting cancer. And so they got him all dressed up, and they actually got a Batmobile. I'll show you some pictures They got him in a Batmobile. Seriously, though, he got to ride around town, fight different little battles against different bad guys, got to rescue someone who was in trouble. They marched him through the city, straight up to City Hall, and 10,000 people gathered in the streets to cheer on little Miles Scott. The mayor actually came and gave him a key to the city. And for one day... The world said, we can help this little guy believe that he's Batman. What's so fun is that he got a note from uh, a video, actually, from President Obama. saying, Miles, I believe in you, buddy. I believe in you. What's maybe even more staggering is he got a note from every one of the living Batman that have played Batman. Even the ones that we want to forget (laughs) um, that played Batman. Or the ones that will play Batman that we want to forget. Anyway, the, the point is, he... 
Really? You're gonna, a Ben Affleck joke? Really? We're going to get stuck there? I think we can move through. God, God loves him, and so do I. What's so powerful is that for one little day, one little guy got to believe really big that he was Batman. And what I think everyone was doing there was not just trying to help Miles believe that he was Batman. What 10,000 people showed up, what half a million tweets, what all the eyes of the world looking at this one story were helping little Miles believe is that he is loved. He's seen. He's loved. And if the world (laughs) notices one little boy on one day who gets that he's believed in, who gets that he's loved. Imagine what would happen if a community of people began to live out their everyday ordinary lives knowing that they are loved by the God of the universe. Knowing that even with all that they've done to make a mess of their life or even all that they've done to try and earn and press God to get his love, regardless of all of that, they are still loved by God. Loved by God. Radically, unconditionally, inexplicably Loved by God. When you and I get that reality, it changes what we do and the world begins to be loved. Those around us begin to receive love because we have actually received the love of God. This is how love works. Is it starts with God's love for you. You receiving that and allowing yourself to be defined as the beloved of God. And then you loving God and loving others because of how you've been loved. This is how love works. When you get that that's what God thinks of you, he loves you, that when God sees you, he sees his son and his daughter, when you get just how loved you are by God, it changes the way you live. You're able to offer forgiveness more freely because who are you to withhold forgiveness when God has not withheld it from you? You're able to ask for forgiveness more quickly because you realize your own brokenness and the God of the universe loves me even with all my faults and all my brokenness. And so certainly I can ask for forgiveness because I'm aware of how unlovable I am and yet the God of the universe still loves me. When you get how loved you are by God, it changes the way that you treat your roommates and how you talk to your roommates, how you talk to your friends, what you talk about with your friends how you talk to your spouse, how you talk to your kids. It changes because you get, you are already loved by God. And you have something to offer them out of the freeness, the freedom and fullness of that place. When you get just how loved you are by God, your confession actually to God of your own brokenness, your asking for forgiveness from God actually comes from a truer place, a more honest place. Not out of fear, but out of a sense of, God, I don't want anything to stay between us because you love me so much. And so God, I want to bring all these things, all these things to you. I don't want to try and manage any of this on my own. I'm going to bring it all to you. When you get how loved you are, by the God of the universe, there's not a day that you can walk into work without purpose. Now look, your job may be really, really 
hard or your job may be really, really, really boring or you may not see purpose on the surface. But when you know how loved you are by God, you look at everywhere you go and everyone you're with as an opportunity to extend God's love because of who you already are. And so, yes, you actually do have a purpose in your work. You do have a purpose on your campus. You are one loved by God and you have something to offer to others out of that place. When you get how loved you are by God, it changes the way you pray. You're not kind of praying to a cold and distant God out there hoping that he hears. You are praying to a God who is here and a God who cares about every aspect of your life, every high, every low, everything in between. You pray differently, more intimately, more honestly with God. When you get how much the God of the universe cares for you, you give more freely and more generously. Because you look at your life and all that you have and you go, it's a gift. Are you kidding me? It's a gift. And I may have worked really hard, but the truth is I'm someone loved by God and this is a blessing and I want to share it with others. And so you give more generously, more than you ever have before because you get that you're loved by God and you don't want anything to take the place of that love. When you get how loved you are by God, you serve with a greater sense of love and dignity and compassion because you know all the broken and difficult places in your own life. And so you're able to serve at a much truer and more beautiful God-honoring place. This is what happens when you get how loved you are. It changes how you live. You don't do things to become someone. You do things because you already are. You're already loved by God. And so the question for us this week, and the question for us as we move into this campaign this month of Love Works, where we want to see uh, God's love extended like never before through our church, is simply this. How will you live into the love that God has for you? How will you live into the love that God has for you? How will you live into that? How will you let that define who you are? How will you let that become your reality? That I'm loved by the God of the universe. And because of that, this is how I live. How will you live into the love God has for you? Your homework is simply this, to remember and remind yourself, however, whenever possible, that you are loved. You're loved, and that changes everything has the power to change your perspective this week, has the power to literally change your life. You are loved. And so what we're going to do for the next few moments is respond to that reality, to respond to God's love, to put into practice what is stirring in our heart. And we're going to do it in a couple ways, ways that we do uh, consistently here at Soul City Church. We're going to sing and worship and offer that to God. And we're also at the same time going to receive an offering. We're going to offer uh, resources to the work that God is doing here in this church and beyond its walls. And we do both uh, every week for a couple of reasons. A lot of our church gives online and does that. That's how Jean and I do it. Uh, we love actually doing that way. We love actually each year being able to go in and increase each year by a percentage how much we're giving because we see how much God has given to us. Love that. But we do it as part of our worship because it's a reminder to us that this is actually all a gift from God. And when you get how loved you are and how much God has lavished blessing on your life, you want to respond. And so we want to give you a chance to respond to God and to give to what he does. It extends the work of what he's doing in this church and beyond its walls, but more than that, it deepens the work that he wants to do in your heart 
to loosen the grip of your stuff, to help you live this year more like he actually intended you to live it, more free in your resources. So we're going to give and then we're going to respond to God and worship. And my request is this. For those of you who are the singing type and you have a relationship with God and you are getting this morning, it's sinking in just how much this God loves you, then when we sing in a few moments, it should sound different in this room. There should be a different tone in this room. The tone of the people who get a community that gets their love by God. And the sound of the, the joy of that, the hope in that, the freedom in that will resound through these walls and all the way to heaven. That we get, we are a community who gets, we are loved by God. And any chance we have to express our gratitude and our love for him, we take it. So in a minute when we sing, you're going to have an opportunity to do just that. So let me pray for us and we'll give and we'll sing and move on in our time together this morning. God, thank you for the reality of who you are the truth of who you are, that you are a God who loves. God, I thank you that that's not just a theological idea, but it is a reality that defines who I am. And I pray that that would become the reality that defines those who are hearing this truth from your heart this morning. God, I pray specifically for those who've been trying really hard to be really good. And maybe instead of getting better, what ended up happening is they've gotten bitter. Bitter and angry at you or at others or jealous of others or mad at themselves that they can't break these old habits or patterns on their own. God, would you free them today with your love? Free them from the thought that they could ever do anything to earn your love. Break the curse of religion today, God, in their heart. Thank you, God that you did for us what we could never do for you, for ourselves. You did it through your son, Jesus. You literally, you did it. You accomplished it completely through Jesus. And God, for every person here this morning who thought that they were exempt from your love because of choices they've made in their lives or habits or patterns or something from their past, God, would you soften their heart and open their eyes and lift their head towards heaven this morning to see your heart for them, God, your eyes, how much you love them and you call them your beloved, your son and your daughter with whom you are well pleased. God, would you help us live into the love that you have for us and may it come out when we give and when we sing and when we talk to each other and when we serve. God, we want the love that you have for us to literally pour out of our lives and out of this church into this city and into this world that you love. We pray this all by the name of God our Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.